Good morning, everybody. I hope you guys are enjoying your uh, 4th of July weekend. It looks like we've got a lot of fun things to be able to do over the next several days. But please, uh, as Keith has said, make sure that you uh, take time to be safe and enjoy. We pray for wherever you may be going or forever, wherever you may have uh, people coming from, that everybody gets there safely and that they are able to be encouraged and blessed. Uh, we right now are continuing our study in the book of Hebrews. And what I'd like to do before we actually dive into the message, the passage itself, out of the 8th chapter of Hebrews, is just give a summary for us to understand really what's going on in this book. The aspect of this is that individuals had come to Christ, or they had seen what Christ had done. They had seen Christ come, live, die on a cross to forgive us of our sins, and then obviously rise from the grave um, and demonstrate his triumph over sin and death and that victory. Now, in that, from this time frame, probably... 20, 30, maybe 35 years had gone by. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Obviously, individuals are moving away from the Jewish tradition or the Jewish faith toward the Christian faith. But things are hard. Things are challenging. They're being persecuted for their faith. And so, in it, many of them are beginning to turn away from Christ and turn back to the old manner of Old Testament living, Old Testament teaching, but more importantly, Old Testament law and Old Testament justification. The entirety of the book is essentially the author building up arguments to demonstrate the superiority of Christ over a variety of different things that individuals would remember from living in Old Testament times. Remember, the big thing that you have to recognize in this is that Christ has lived, died, and risen from the grave. He has established the new covenant. But simultaneously, during this time, people are following Jesus, and yet the temple and the temple sacrifice still continues. That's such an important uh, remembrance of what's going on here. It wasn't destroyed until A.D. 70. And so you have a period in this time where both are happening together. Now, why is this important? Well, for us today, sure, the temple has been destroyed, the new covenant has been established, but oftentimes individuals will come forward, they will experience Jesus, get a taste of Jesus, have an expectation of him. Jesus exists to give me a better life. Jesus exists to make me happy. Jesus exists to give me a better job. A combination of these things. And sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes when we come to Christ, actually our lives get harder rather than easier. And so what will happen is if we come forward with this expectation and it doesn't meet what we think it should, we begin to say, you know what? This, this Jesus thing, this coming to church and all that, it's not worth it. I'm going back to what was. And so this author is establishing arguments saying, look at how much better Jesus is than 
the prophets, then Moses, then the Old Testament sacrificial system, then the Old Testament law. We've talked a lot about how he is the high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And we've learned that the uniqueness of Melchizedek was that he wasn't part of the Levitical priestly order. And that's important to see because the Levitical priests were assigned to be priests. And that's all they did. Kings could be kings of kingdoms, but you couldn't have both together. We talked about how Uzziah tried to do that. He was king, and he tried to be priest. And what I'll tell you is, it didn't go well for him. The unique aspect of Christ and Melchizedek is that Melchizedek was both king and priest. And that's important to recognize because the priests could only offer sacrifice, but they didn't have the authority to make the sacrifice work. We've spent a bunch of time coming up to this period in the book realizing that really what the priests were doing was all in vain. They were just going through the motions. Now, some of you are going to get a kick out of this. If I start moving over here from last week, what are you going to do? Right? I'm not going to do that. I don't want to. Ellen does a great job on the xylophone, okay? But you're like, no, don't go there. Don't do it, right? Why? Because the point was to demonstrate all of that futility to the annoyance of ourselves was to demonstrate why would we go back to this when we can just go straight to the cross and be freely forgiven and have our lives whole with Jesus. That's the point. That's where we were at. But this morning, I want to take a moment, and we're looking now at chapter 8, and what's happening is, is the author is beginning to sort of summarize and conclude this long-standing argument of why Jesus is the best of the best, or as you've heard me say before, the goat, okay? The greatest of all times. Soon, we are going to start moving into, now that we know this, now that we understand this, Let's move with confidence, boldly, in our walk with Jesus Christ, being followers of him. And so just a, a quick illustration, if you're kind of looking and you're saying, you know, I want the summary of the book, the best way to say it is this. The book starts off, people had, and I'll, I'll use the word come to Jesus or maybe become interested in him, and they're like, sure, yeah, you know, we've done this for thousands of years. We've lived in the Old Testament way for thousands of years with the priests, with a sacrificial system. Now Jesus has come. He's lived. He's died. He's risen from the grave. I'll take it. I'll, I'll, I call it kick the tires of Jesus. I'll just kind of investigate what's going on. I'll sign up for it. And then all of a sudden they move into this, and that's this 30 years aspect. And life isn't that great. They're being persecuted for their faith. Simultaneously, like I said before, watching and realizing that the sacrificial system that they were used to, that they knew, is still continuing. It's still happening. And they're being persecuted for their belief in Christ. And they're looking back, and they're going, I, I don't know that I want to keep going with Jesus. So many of them say, 
That's it. I'm going to go back to this. And so again, chapters 1, essentially through 8, and kind of into 9, the author is saying, let me show you why Jesus is so much better. Gosh, right? You're walking here. It's tough. Jesus is better than the prophets. Keep going. Jesus is better than Moses. Keep going. Jesus is better than the Old Testament system. Keep going. Jesus is better than the Levitical priesthood. Keep going. He's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Keep going. He's established a new covenant. Praise God. Keep going. All of this I now have to move forward in confidence in my walk with Jesus Christ. And that's what the author is driving to. We're going to see that particularly in uh, chapter 11. And then we see it in chapter 12. May we run the race with what? Perseverance. Keeping our eyes focused on Jesus. Don't look, don't wonder, don't think. Keep your eyes focused on him because he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. That's the book. That's what this is all about. But today, we still find ourselves in chapter 8. We still find ourselves in the building of the argument. We still find ourselves with the author saying, let me wrap this up more for you so that any wondering, any concern, any fear that you have about is it worth it to follow Jesus is eradicated when you understand and know that he truly is the best of the best. So this morning, we're going to ask this question, what do I do when my exposure to Christ isn't what I hoped it would be? That's question number one. Sometimes people come forward and they're kind of interested in Jesus. They're kind of thinking, yeah, you know, I think Jesus is going to give me a better life or he's going to get me out of this trouble or he's going to make this happen or he's going to do these things for me. And so oftentimes people will come with this kind of expectation and maybe it doesn't happen. Or maybe they want a microwave solution to their problem rather than a slow-cooked meal. And so they look around and they think, and they think that Jesus should fix all of their worries, fix all of their concerns. And maybe he doesn't, according to what they expect. And they say, that's it, I'm done. Now, the other side of this is for those of us that have placed our faith and trust in Christ, sometimes we may experience something different than what we hope. And so the next question is, what do I do when my experience with Christ isn't what I expected it to be? Can I ask an honest question? How many of you out there, after coming to Jesus and walking with him, can honestly say, I love my Lord, I love who he is, but what I thought the experience would be hasn't really turned out to be that way. It's not what I, what I expected. And oftentimes what we do in that is we begin to say, gosh, you know, is it worth it? Now remember, we've seen that Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, enables us to have the ability to persevere. But oftentimes, we want to look back or we want to leave the race. And I've said before that the Christian faith 
is a marathon. It isn't a sprint. We must continue to walk by faith with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I've also said that Jesus does not exist to make us happy. Jesus doesn't exist to make us wealthy. Jesus doesn't exist to take away worry. And Jesus doesn't exist to make us what we think he should be. Jesus exists to die on a cross to forgive us of our sin. That's why Christ went to the cross. And we've talked before about the fact that when churches begin to minimize that fact, when they take more of a message about, hey, Jesus is here to give you this or to give you that, those things, they may happen, they may be good, but that's not what Jesus has done. Jesus died on a cross to forgive us of our sin, knowing that we have no means to forgive ourselves. That's been demonstrated by the futility of the Old Testament sacrificial system. So this morning, that question in mind, we're turning to Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. And let's take a look. We've just come off of the argument, or essentially the understanding about Jesus being like Melchizedek, because he's in the line of Melchizedek. And so we transition to this point, and it says, the point of what we are saying, so all of what's just been kind of spoken about in essentially um, the mid part of chapter 6, all of chapter 7 to here, this is sort of the summary. This is what he's driving toward. The point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for these are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the, don't miss this word, pattern shown to you on the mountain. But the ministry of Jesus has received is a superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator. It's superior to the old one, and it is founded on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I, look, uh, when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, write them in their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a, a, man, his, uh, or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. 
because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness, I will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. The author is moving, and he's finally sort of culminating everything that is here. He is essentially wrapping the bow on the present or the gift that Christ has given to us. He's coming toward his conclusion, saying, look back to all of the reasons that I've given to you to continue in your faith with Jesus Christ. Now that I've essentially established all of this, I'm talking about the culmination of it, and then he will move forward to the applicational piece. But the next question is this. What do you do when your exposure to Christ isn't what you think or what you hope? Or what do you do when your experience with Christ isn't what you expect? This passage can be an encouragement to us to continue walking with our Savior Jesus Christ. In verses 1 and 2, the first thing that I want you to look at and see is this. That remember with Christ, we have a high priest who is seated at the right hand of God. That is so important to remember and recognize for us. Unlike the other priests, Jesus is seated in the throne of heaven. Now, we look at that and we think, well, we know this and that's fine. But remember back. Again, you have to recognize that during this time, individuals still saw the sacrificial system moving forward. There were still priests who were offering sacrifices. But here's what's unique about this. The author says, the point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Not a big deal. He sat down. What's Well, a couple reasons. Number one, sitting down at the right hand of the throne. Okay? In kingly priestly orders, okay, in kingdoms, nobody just walks up to the right side of the throne of the king and just sits down. You don't do that. If you do, and you're the wrong person, guess what's going to happen? I'll just say it's not going to be a very good day. To be able to sit down at the right hand of that throne, to sit there, A, is authoritative, so it's demonstrating authority. But here's also what's important. In the Old Testament system, in the, te- uh, the temple and the tabernacle, inside sort of the Holy of Holies, there were no seats. The priests never rested. They never got to sit down and say, the work is done. They were continually offering sacrifices. So as we kind of go through this verse, it's, oh yeah, you know, Jesus sat down, great, praise God for it. But knowing this, the author is saying, look, number one, it's authoritative. Number two, the fact that he is sitting down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven means that the work is done. He can rest. Now the next thing, too, is this. Sure, the priests in the Levitical side could be going in and doing their thing, But no one is sitting down in what? The true tabernacle. The real tabernacle. The original tabernacle. 
which is in heaven. That's what's being stated here. So great. You guys keep your system, keep your priests, keep doing your thing, keep recognizing that it's in futility, but realize that Jesus authoritatively has now sat down in a place that you can't, which is actually the original, not a copy, not a shadow. And the reason he sat down is because the work is finished. He doesn't have to keep doing it. He doesn't have to keep offering sacrifices in an effort of futility. And so one of the things that I want to encourage you in is, is when you're walking with Christ and when you're struggling in your faith, to go back and say, I worship a priest a great high priest who is king and priest, and he's seated with authority in the real temple or tabernacle. And the reason he's seated is because the work is finished and he is resting. And that can bring great peace to us and confidence in our walk with God. And he who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, set up by the Lord, not by man. Think about this for a minute. Remember that God told Moses, okay, you need to do this, you need to set this up. But the temple and the tabernacle through all of the Old Testament were set up by what? Man's hands. The true tabernacle of which he's speaking, we didn't build it. God did. That's the real one. That's the one that's valuable. So the reason that I'm taking time in this is so often we can read these verses and we can just, yeah, I mean, I get it. Okay, great. Jesus is cited at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay, that's wonderful. But we miss the flavor, the fruit, and the joy that's being described there. The richness of this. Realizing, again, that right across the street, right across the road, when these people were worshiping Jesus, for lack of a better word, the temple was set up and things were still happening. And so visually to them, they're sitting there and they're going, Jesus has come, he's lived, and he's died, and he's risen from the grave, and nothing's changed. Do we ever feel that way? It's still the same. What's the difference? He's promised us new life. And yet, I'm looking across the road here to a place that I can't get to, to a system that I'm not part of, to something that I will never be able to get. And yet, because I believe in this person, I'm being persecuted. It'd just be easier to go back. And we look and we say, well, yeah, we know. We're not part of the temple system anymore. But what about Christ's second coming? It'd just be easier. Jesus said that he'd come back. When is he going to come back? Will he ever come back? How much longer, O oh Lord? And so simultaneously what we see is not necessarily temple sacrifice happening, but we see the continuation of a world in sin. And we're like, God, how long? How long must we wait? And that's, again, that we can turn back and remember that we have a high priest who is in the true temple and he's seated at the right hand of God. Now the next thing that I want to show you is in verses 3 through 5 and that is this. They remember the law and the Levitical priesthood are only copies 
and shadows of the original. They're only copies and shadows of the original. Now, here's what's interesting, okay? We look at this and we say, what? That the temple and the tabernacle were first in our brains, which in our minute thinking is true, right? The temple and the tabernacle of the Old Testament in our brains existed first. Then Jesus came along, right? He's second. That's logical. That's true. But if we lift our eyes to the reality of who God is, what truly is second? The temple made by man. The temple that God has established has always existed. That's the first one. It's the original. It's the true one. It's the one with tremendous value. And so what you see, O oh people, as you're tempted to go back to this system, is a copy or a shadow of the original. Now, how many of you like copies? Copies are okay, right? They're not bad, but they're not the original. And then I love what the author says. There's a shadow. How many of you ever, you know, late at night or early in the morning, done a walk, and you've turned, and you've kind of played with your shadow, right? Kind of fun to do, and you look, and you're like, wow, you know, if I turn this way, I, you know, grow from like five, eight and a half to like 20 feet tall, and that is good for me in my Napoleon complex, right? And then I turn the other way, and my shadow kind of goes down, and I'm like, I don't like that view because I'm only about two feet tall, right? Looks, looks real, moves with me, right? Does what I want. But then you go to grab it. You go to hold on to it. You, you, you go to use it to have you be solidified. You, you hope that it will bring you security, and what do you do? You just go like this constantly. You can't grab it. Which remember, we go back and we say, sure, go grab it for the tabernacle, meaning the tabernacle of man, because it's a copy and it's a shadow. Return to Christ, who's the priest in the real temple, who is the anchor for our soul. Do you remember that? A couple of verses back. Where do you want to go? Do you want to keep reaching, keep grabbing? Or do you want to hold on to the anchor? You know, it's interesting, um, I kind of was, was thinking about this, and I love what kind of God does over his time as you're putting messages together. Um, this past week, well, past two weeks, Kelly and I have said, you know what, we're doing it. And so we've taken two Tuesdays off, and the first Tuesday we cleaned out the garage, and the next Tuesday we cleaned out the storage room. Okay, and God bless America, right? Yours truly, and I'm, I'm kind of sitting there, I'm like, God, you know, divine providence, I don't know. But anyway, long story short, you're all going, why is he in glasses, Right? Well, guess what? We got to clean out the storage garage, kind of clean it out. I won't, I mean, it needed to be cleaned out is the best way to put it. And somehow, some way, by me trying to do an illustration to you about my right side of my eye and the brain and all that kind of stuff, cancer, and why would I, you know, terminal, and why would I not? Well, I guess God just said, you know what, I'm going to give you a sense of humor. I'm going to give you a pink eye. Whoa, everybody, oh no, okay, so here's the deal. I've washed my hands, just don't worry. You don't have to shake my hand afterwards today. I've been on antibiotic for like four days already, no big deal. But, where am I going with all of this? As we're cleaning out our storage room, there are a box of baseball cards for me, 
Okay, back when I was a kid, I enjoyed collecting cards. I enjoyed collecting baseball cards for whatever reason. And a good friend of mine, Uncle Brucey, okay, would always give me for my birthday the full set of that year. So I've got sets from like, I don't know, 19, probably 79 to I think 85 of like Fleer and, you know, tops and all that kind of stuff. And I'm sitting there and I'm kind of going through and I have a couple of loose cards. I just find this one and I'm like, yeah, I don't know who this guy is and I throw it in the trash, right? Not worth anything. It, it wasn't. But what if, what if I wasn't thinking? And, and what if I threw away that card? List of most expensive sports, uh, sports cards. This is a list of the highest known prices paid for sports cards. Okay. I could be wrong. Okay. If Tom Church were here, he could validate or invalidate me because he's also a baseball guru. I just went to Wikipedia and said, give me, give me something, right? The current record price is $12.6 million for a 1952 Mickey Mantle baseball card on August 28, 2022. What if I threw that away? What if I was just, I'm like, clean, I'm cleaning out my garage, cleaning out my storage room, I've got to get rid of it, right? Now here's my point. If I don't know its value, I'm going to just throw it away. If we don't know our value in Christ, we're just going to throw it away. And that's what this author has done for all of these chapters. He said, look at what you have. Recognize what you've been given. Hold on to what you have. Because you're not just throwing away a $12.6 million card. You're throwing away your eternal destiny. And I don't know about you, but if somebody comes to me and says, you can have $12.6 million or you can rot in hell forever. I'm going to go, you know what? I'm going with Christ. You can have your money. Okay, now this is an illustration, but the whole point of what's going on here is the author is saying, if you don't know the value of what you have in Christ, you will be tempted to just throw it away and not recognize its value. And what I'm telling you is what you thought you had, what the world thinks it has, other than Christ, is just a copy, it's just a shadow, it's not the real thing. Every high priest, verse three, as appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one to have something to offer. If he were here on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Essentially quoting out of a passage in Exodus 25, 40. And so lovingly, what I want to ask you is this. Do you want the copy or do you want the real thing? That's what the author is driving at. 
And also, intertwined in this, don't miss that every priest must bring a sacrifice. That's just the real thing. Every priest, including Jesus himself, must bring a sacrifice. But what's the difference? The priests under the Levitical order would bring goats, calves, different things that people would bring to them to offer. Why was Jesus' sacrifice final and whole? Because the sacrifice that he brought, as we know, was himself. And so when I think about the fact that my Savior has given me an original and is seated in the true tabernacle at the right hand of my Father because he's authoritative but also resting due to the fact that the work is done. Again, why would I go back? Why would I turn back to a system of futility rather than persevere with Christ? Rather than trusting in who my great high priest is. So brothers and sisters, this morning, number one, when we're struggling in our faith, when we're wondering and thinking, you know, this experience that we have isn't what I hoped it would be. Remember that with Christ we have a high priest who's seated at the right hand of the God, but also remember that the law and the Levitical priesthood are only copies and shadows of the original. They're an image. They point in a direction, but they're not the real thing. And then the author continues in verse 6, and this is what I want to encourage us in. Remember, Christ's ministry as the great high priest is much more excellent than the old and there's a purpose in that, much more excellent. How many of you would go to your English professor and say, much more excellent, right? What would the professor say? Got to get rid of one of those. It's not much more, it's either more or much, right? Faulty grammar, right? But that's exactly what the Greek says, much more. And so in faulting the grammar, what the author is doing is he's saying, it is so incredibly greater. It is so more, but it's so much more. It is so amazing that the only manner to describe this is to say much more. Because it's indescribable. And in verse 6, we read this. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs, much more greater, essentially, as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. And it is founded on better promises. Who's the one that has founded it? God. How has it been founded? By an oath that God has made. God has said, you, Jesus, will be my priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. You are the one whom I choose. You are the one who will bring about the restoration of your people and my people for the salvation of their souls. And you will be the one through your death and resurrection from the grave and ascension into heaven that will bring life to them. And I, God, have made that promise. And I, God, do not ever change my promise. That's, that's what's wrapped up in those. The ministry that Jesus has received is as superior, much more greater to theirs, 
as the covenant of which he is the mediator is superior to the old one. And it is founded on better promises. That word founded, right, foundation, it's the basis of everything. Think about this before. We talked before even utilizing sort of the idea of a home. The author had talked about how God and Christ are what? The builder and the owner. Remember that back in the other part of those passages? And that the Levitical priests and Moses and all of those, they were just renters. They were just passing by. Think through this for a minute. I've said before, if you go to somebody and let's say you're asking them to do something with their house and they're like, well, I'm just the renter here. I'm, I'm not the owner. What are you going to do? They don't have any authority. The owner is the one who has the authority to do it. But not only this, Christ is the owner and the builder. And so this promise, watch this, founded is better. And so here's what I want to show to you. What foundation would you want to lay your entire salvation on? What house would you want to build? Would you want to build it on the firm foundation of Jesus? Or would you want to build it on the shaky foundation of the world? Hmm. I think I've heard that somewhere. I think somebody else said that somewhere. Do you see how all this intertwines? Do you see what God is doing? It's interesting. Um, I want to I say this, okay. This is essentially what's being said here. The Old Covenant, okay, so the old manner of how we did things, the Old Testament, covenant that God makes, right, sets up the standard for us beautifully. The Old Covenant sets up the standard. It's, it's beautiful. You know, thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt do this. Thou shalt not do that. Thou shalt do this. Right? It demonstrates the holiness of God. It demonstrates how we should be before Him. It's beautiful. There's nothing wrong with it. But here's the issue. The problem is that it only sets the standard. It just says, this is the standard. So it's beautiful. But in only setting the standard, it leaves us what? Unable to meet the standard. It gives us no ability or aid to keep it. Think about that for a minute. This is the standard, and it's beautiful, but you have no means whatsoever to keep it. Hence, we discover later on, Paul writes, the whole reason of the law is what? Not to make us holy. It's to remind us how sinful we are. That we have no ability to meet the standard of God. Yet under the new covenant, under the covenant that Christ established as the great high priest, both king and priest, in the order of Melchizedek, seated with authority in the true temple, we are giving the transforming power of Jesus Christ via the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit within our lives. The aid and the ability to keep the covenant isn't in ourselves. It's by the grace, mercy, and blessing of God who grants us the Holy Spirit within us when we place our faith and trust in Him who is our counselor and our guide.
Brothers and sisters in Christ, what that means for us is stop trying to do it on your own. Stop trying to win God's approval. Stop trying to think that you have to earn it. Stop trying to think that you have to do it on your own manner. You have no ability to do so. But you have whole ability because the Holy Spirit is within you. Rest on Him. Rest on His authority and rest on His ability. Praise God for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, for the true believer. The next thing that I want to show you in verses 7 through 12 is essentially kind of a summary of this, and this is what it's being sort of stated or driven toward. Remember, okay, that if the first priesthood was fine, there would be no need for the second, okay? Now, remember before, you're like, wait a minute, which one's the first, which one's the second? We're talking in the worldly manner, right? The first true priesthood, the real tabernacle, is the one with Jesus Christ. It's always been there. It's always eternally existed. But in the eyes of the people, they're seeing and they're thinking that the first manner was the one that was established by Moses. The one of the temple and then the tabernacle and then the temple again. And if that was fine, if that worked, if that was true, if it was all good, then why would we even need a second? And better yet, as we discover in a moment, what the author is doing is is quoting from Jeremiah, where Jeremiah is saying, there's a time coming when I will build or establish the new one. And so way back, even before Jesus was there, even before Jesus came, God is already saying, look, you've got this system set up. You're going through your thing. But I'm going to tell you that a time is coming when there will be a better covenant. Keep your eyes looking forward. Keep your eyes looking toward the Messiah. Keep your eyes looking to the Savior, Yeshua, Jesus, Lord God of all. And so... If we're tempted to go back, an easy way to look at that and to say is this. If that system was good, if that system could do it, why do we need Jesus at all? And the reason that we need Jesus is because we've discovered that that system was futile. The author continues on, and he says... For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, okay, meaning the Levitical priesthood, the covenant that God made, okay, no place would have been sought for another. But then watch this, verse 8. But God found fault with the people and said, and then this is a quote from Jeremiah, okay? And he continues on. A time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. And you're hearing covenant and covenant and all this kind of stuff. And you're sitting there and you're like, well, if God makes a covenant, doesn't he keep it? And this is like a whole other class and a whole other sermon for another day. But just the simple way to kind of understand this is to recognize that God makes sort of unconditional promises or covenant. I will do this, 
This is my covenant, period. Doesn't matter what happens, what you do or don't do. I will do it. But he also makes conditional covenants. I will do this if. I will do this when. And if it, the if and the when isn't met, God's like, transactional here. I will do it if. You didn't do the if. I'm not held up. So God's people hear this, and they're like, oh, great. We've been rescued by God, but what do they do? They turn to God. They think everything is great, and how often? After God rescues them out of the mess that they've put themselves in, do they stay with God and worship Him forever? I mean, I don't know about you, and, and, and it's funny, because there's times that I'm reading the Old Testament, and I'm going like, come on, people, will you get it? Like, if you would just get it, if you would just, like, stop behaving like a teenager, God wouldn't have to do this. And then they get rescued again, and they're all safe, and blah, 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 and great, and it's wonderful, and you're like, ah, oh, finally. Right? And what do they do? Like, right back into the same mess. Sometimes, like, not even 40 days after, they're back worshiping other idols. They're back thinking that other things are better. They're back doing their thing, thinking, you know what? We're going to do our own thing because we think we know what to do. We want the security of God, but we want to be God's ourselves. God says, there is only one God. And again, we back, forth, back, forth, back, forth, back. They're like, ah, oh, please. And then finally, in God's sovereign providence, Jesus comes and says, okay, we're done. Ah, right? These people are wanting to get back into the mess again. They're wanting to go back to, ah, please. You're like, the work's done. It's over. Jesus has made this new covenant for you. You don't have to do this anymore. We don't have to read this. We don't have to have the pastor bang on the xylophone and irritate you guys to the point that poor Ellen probably is always going to be looked at and be remembered by me going bonk, 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 and you are a beautiful player, by the way. But the whole point is, is the futility behind it, the pointlessness of it, the incompleteness of it, and yet the wholeness and the richness and the blessedness and the finalness and the completeness and the totality and the perfectedness of Jesus our Savior. Kind of the summary aspect of this, in verses sort of 8b, for lack of a better word, through 12 of Hebrews chapter 8, the author is directly quoting from the prophecy of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, verses, uh, chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. Okay? So that's where this quotation is coming from. And it's crucial to recognize. This is crucial to recognize. This is absolutely important to understand and to know. And the reason for this is, is because it makes it clear that this is part of God's plan of redemption all along. That is so important to see. It is part of God's plan of redemption all along. Summatively, what this means is that Jesus dying on a cross has never been God's plan B. Ever. And people are tempted to think that sometimes God was doing his thing, 
God was working things out. God had this system established. And all of a sudden, the people started to rebel, and God basically said, oh, schnoiky, it's the fourth quarter, I'm down by seven, I need to throw a Hail Mary pass and hope that we connect. So Jesus, get out there and do what you can do. And people think that God's on the sideline and Jesus gets in there as quarterback and he's like, okay, down, set, hike, and everybody's running down and they're all excited and Jesus goes like this and throws this ball and God's going, oh, it worked out! My gamble paid off! Or the ball is dropped in the end zone and God says, game over. And the reason that I bring this up is that has never been part of the game plan. Jesus has always been God's plan. The Messiah has always been God's plan. And you know what's amazing? Is God comes in and we're the ones. We're the ones on that sideline. Hoping and praying that indeed that Hail Mary pass comes off. Because if it does not, we lose, not God. Do you see the difference? We lose, not God. So brothers and sisters gathered this morning, remember that if the first priesthood was fine, there would be no need for the second. And again, the author goes all the way through and essentially quotes from Jeremiah demonstrating to the believers or to those people that are kicking the tires of Jesus around that this has always been God's plan. And then interestingly enough, we're like, great, right? It's over. We can kind of move on to the next thing. And then we have this, this verse 13. This, this amazing verse. And essentially he says, by calling this covenant new, He's made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. What a beautiful thing. What an amazing thing. But to understand this, we have to dive deep into that statement. First thing I want you to see is this. By calling this new covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. Okay? What is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. He's speaking back to the Old Testament priestly order. Now, interestingly enough, okay, and this is one of these things where, you know, there's good answers, there's good questions, right? This isn't something necessary to part on faith about but it's important to dive deeply into this because what we have to see is this, right? It says, he has made the first one obsolete. Don't, don't miss that word. Circle that word. I'll talk about that in just a minute. And the old one, okay, will soon disappear. Now, some people would say that what the, the author is speaking about is exactly this conundrum that I told you about earlier that when this was written, Jesus indeed had come, he lived, he died, he was ascended into heaven, and the whole temple tabernacle system was still continuing. 
And what he's referencing to is he will soon make it obsolete, the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Okay? Do you understand that? Temple existed, and then as of AD 70, it was destroyed. And then a whole other sermon for another day, we realized that, you know, temple was destroyed. The land of Israel didn't exist until 1948, after it was established as a nation, right? So there is a temporal aspect to it. But there's also a theological one. And that's where, personally, I would rest. I'm not saying you don't have to. I'm just saying I rest there. And I don't think that he's, per se, only focusing on the temporal aspect. I think he's speaking to the theological one. That the old system will soon become obsolete. And when will it become obsolete? It will become obsolete with the culmination of everything at the second coming of Christ. What does that mean? That the old system isn't done. It's just obsolete. And that's what I want to dive into for a minute. Okay, um, this is, I'm going to kind of read this quote, and this is, just pray on this. This is a, uh, hopefully we can explain it, but it's a deep aspect of theology. The word obsolete is very important here. The author does not say that it's been eradicated. Okay? And there is a purpose in that. It's obsolete, but it's not eradicated. And let me explain. Recognize that the author does not say the old is eradicated or destroyed. Only under Christ, the old has become obsolete. It's Pepe Leoken. Okay? Try to say that ten times fast. But in the Greek, the word there is Pepe Leoken. And it's utilized specifically in this verse. And so where I'm going with this is be careful not to completely eradicate the Old Testament in the favor of the new. Okay? That's so important. Do not eradicate the Old Testament or the Old Testament sacrificial system or the Old Covenant in favor of the new. That's very dangerous theologically. Because people are tempted to say, well, if the, if the old is old and the new is new, why do we even need to worry about the old? Let's just get rid of it. Let's just throw it away. And let's just have the New Testament. Right? We've heard this before. Just remove the Old Testament. Let's just have the new. And here's a couple of problems with that. Have you ever noticed that if you just remove the Old Testament and you keep the new... How much of the new would you have? Not a lot. Because if you got rid of the old, a lot of the new quotes back to the old. Okay, so there's a problem right there, but there's a deeper problem. Okay, now, let me say this. Well, not demanding that we all be this way, all right, because there are different theological perspectives, but this is important to see. Reformed theology would say that Christ has removed the need for the ceremonial and civil law, but that the moral law reflecting God's moral character is still in effect. If you've ever been in Reformed theology, if you ever talked about Reformed theology, some of you might be in the Reformed theology tradition. If you go back and you look at your Old Testament studies, when we look at Reformed theology, the theologians say what Christ did was he removed the ceremonial and civil aspect, but the moralness is still there. 
meaning we are still under moral obligation. But praise God that Christ has fulfilled that and covers that for us. God's moral character is still in effect. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, etc., etc., etc. Okay? Now, the reason that I'm bringing this up, there's a bunch of lists here, and if you want, I can give these to you. But the challenge of this, and the reason that I bring this up, is sometimes people are tempted to just say, you know what, the Old Testament is old. The Old Testament is confusing. The Old Testament is ugly. I mean, how do we like, how many, hey, let's go talk about God. Let me teach you about, about Jesus, and let's talk about like wars and battles and people dying and, you know, God like destroying cities and blah, blah, blah. And everybody's like, man, can we, can we just get to love your neighbor as yourself? Right? Great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. But here's the problem. What's happening in that is as people are removing the moral character and need of God, they're perverting that commandment into just love your neighbor as yourself. That's all we got to do. That's all we got to be. You can be whatever you want, do whatever you want, act however you want, just love your neighbor as yourself. All of these other things that God has done and God asks is no longer needed. And that is a train wreck, theologically speaking. Now, case in point, and I want to be very careful on this, okay? Um, I am a fan of An Andy Stanley, okay? I just want you to know that. I'm a fan of Andy Stanley, okay? Great pastor, gate preacher, not saying he's heretical. But Andy Stanley, in 2018, wrote a book, Irresistible, Reclaiming the New Testament that Jesus Unleashed for the World. Okay, that's his book. I encourage you to go read it. I'm not saying don't go read it. Andy Stanley is a great teacher, preacher. But the problem with this book is, is that in an effort, which I commend of Andy Stanley, he is wanting to bring people to Jesus. But the conundrum that he sees is that when you're trying to bring people to Jesus and you're looking back at Old Testament, and all of these things, that it can kind of permeate into the church, and it can kind of make things hard and tough and weird and, 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 and kind of construed. And it pushes people away. And so he goes essentially to this point where he says, I, don't, I almost kind of think we just need to get rid of the Old Testament. Okay? And Reformed theologians would look at this and say, mm -mm, foul ball. You can't remove the Old Testament because then you have no foundation to truly understand the grace and the mercy that we've been given. Sort of thinking about this theologically, okay, don't, don't call me a heretic, but I'm just going to make this sort of a, it's the yin and the yang. It's the yin and the yang, right? You've got to have the bad to understand fully the good. Right? What Andy's wanting to do is he's saying, you know, there's just too much bad, and that's keeping people from the good. So let's talk and just focus on the good. But the problem is, is how can you truly cherish the good if you don't see the bad? And the reality of this is, to be honest, we don't need the book of Hebrews anymore. If, if, we, don't, if we don't look back, right, if we don't see what was going on and the reality of who Christ is, if we just look at the good and not the bad, 
then Hebrews really doesn't need to be written. Make sense? Now, that being said, I'm just bringing forward to you some things that we want to be careful about in our theological thinking. Love Andy Stanley. Please don't run around and say that Trevor's calling Andy a heretic. He's not. But in this effort, I think his heart is in the right place. He wants people to come to Jesus. But the challenge in that is you can't remove or diminish the Old Testament in order to try to reflect on the new. The new shines brightly and brighter because of the old. Now, you all are like, okay, whatever. I know there's some of you that are like deep theological thinkers in here. I wanted to share that with you. Some of you are like, yeah, whatever. I'm just going to move on. That's fine. But I couldn't just ignore this verse because it is important. And the point that I want to finalize in, wherever you lay, wherever you remember, Andy Stanley, no Andy Stanley, okay, covenantal theology, reformed theology or not, the challenge is, this. Be careful that you do not allow the newness of the New Testament to eradicate the old. And the reason that I say that is this. That is exactly what I was up against back when we were speaking to the Church of the Brethren 10 to 15 years ago. That's the reason. That's why I say it today. Okay? So, Redirect, we're going to move to, the ne- to kind of the next part. It isn't eradicated, it's obsolete. It will be made obsolete, or it will become eradicated, for lack of a better word, when Christ comes again. We've looked at this, and we've seen how this works, and I've kind of brought about this question, what do I do when my exposure to Christ isn't what I hoped it would be? Or what do I do when my experience with Christ isn't what I expect it to be? Brothers and sisters, this morning I encourage you with these aspects that we see in this chapter. Remember with Christ that we have a high priest who is seated at the right hand of God. Remember that the law and the Levitical priesthood are only copies and shadows of the original. Remember that Christ's ministry as great high priest is much more excellent. Yes, grammatically wrong, but much more excellent than the old. And remember that if the first priesthood was fine, there wouldn't be need for a second. And lastly, remember that the new covenant under the priesthood of Christ makes the old one obsolete. Kind of summative in all of this, take home truth. When our exposure or our experience with Christ isn't what we had hoped or expected it to be, when that occurs, not if, when, because it will, may we remember in Christ we have a better covenant which makes the old one obsolete.